Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Good morning, church. How are we? Good deal. Good deal. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those, turn them on, whatever you need to do to get to them. Uh, but go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 28, and uh, we are going to look at verses 18 through 20, and these were some verses that we covered last week. Uh, but again, it is going to deal with, with the Great Commission. And as we looked last week in our, in our current series right now of, of Christian story, Christian belief, and Christian formation, uh, we're walking through right now really the, the passages of Scripture or the kind of totality of Scripture when it deals with the church of Jesus Christ, when it deals with, with His main uh, plan A from the beginning in Jesus Christ coming to live the perfect life and to die the perfect death and to then resurrect three days later to earn for us salvation, which is going to ultimately reconcile broken sinners back into right relationship with their Creator, with God Himself. And the only way that was going to happen was through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ now coming and entering into our world and being the perfect person that we needed him to be and being the perfect sacrifice that we needed him to be and then resurrecting three days later, that good news for sinners, the, in, the only way that God uses that good news to get out to the world or the way he commissions it to get out to the world is through the advancement of the church. It's through the ministry of the church. The church has, has one job, tell people about Jesus, spread news about Jesus, advance the gospel of, of Jesus, the good news of who he is, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so that's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks is, is really these three things, the birth of the church, the purpose of the church, and today we're going to be looking at the function of the church. And so how does, uh, as we summed up last week, these two great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. How do those two great commandments that, that, that are given to people, that's, that's what we are to live by, and of course you can only live by them through Jesus living in you, living by those things, how do they then flesh themselves out in the function of the church, the purpose of the church, the mission of the church, the great commission as we see here. And, and that's what we want to dive into today is, what does it look like to make disciples of all nations? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. How does that actually play itself out? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And this is going to be very expository in the sense that we're going to break it down just kind of word for word as we walk through this great commission and what it has for each of us today, three hours from now, Tomorrow, when you wake up in the morning, when you're eating lunch tomorrow, when you're just kind of having that, you know, afternoon lull of just meditating and daydreaming about anything and everything, when you come home tomorrow to your family, whatever it looks like in your day to day, how does this great commission impact that? And really, what is the function of your life as you are belonging to Christ via the church of Jesus Christ? Um, and so as we look at this, I want to read it. Even though I just said it, I want to read it for you again because, again, this is a sandwich commission that's really important for us. Verse 18 says this. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so from this passage, a few questions that I'm going to kind of consider and answer as we walk through this are these. If the call is to make disciples of all nations, how do we make a disciple out of someone? That's going to be a question that we're going to answer. How do we make a disciple out of someone? Another one is, how do we make a disciple out of someone and to which nations do we commit to discipling? Is it all or just one or is it some? How does someone get immersed or baptized into what we call the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How, how does that happen? What does that look like? What and how exactly are we teaching these disciples to observe that Jesus commanded? Because all of these things are the Great Commission. A lot of times people, and especially those who are very overseas driven, very uh, missionary driven, focus on the go. Focus on the go. Just go. That's the command is to go. That is a part of the command as we'll see here in a minute. But the whole command is all of these things encapsulated in it. It's the go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All of those things make up the Great Commission. So you, you then lack the Great Commission. You lack any one of these elements. And each of these elements are the function of why we exist as believers in Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ who are making disciples. All of these things have to be prevalent in our lives. Or we cease to be disciples. We cease to live out the command that He has given the church for the church to exist. And so the first one that I want to start off with is simply go. And I'm going to break these down into six points. All right. So if you're if you're a note taker, there's six points. Number one is go. Go, therefore. So why do we go? Let's start with the therefore. We go because of the authority of Jesus. And I know I talked about authority last week when I talked about the, the two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You cannot do that. We, we have never loved the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. Because our affections are broken and fractured and, and misconstrued at times, and our affections are placed on objects that are not ultimately the Lord at times. And so none of us in this room have ever done at the same time, love the Lord your God with all your soul. When, right now, the world is on a big uh, kind of push, it, especially if you walk into a bookstore and you go to the self-help section and you look at it, a lot of it right now is on emotional well-being. And that's even kind of sprinkled itself into uh, Christendom and Christianity and, and even in the Christian section, a lot of it is on this idea of emotional well-being. And I think there needs to be a sense of emotional well-being because what we're talking about there is soul-level um, um, things that are working on within your affections minds and the total being of who you are as a person. But none of us are at an emotional well-being that is a soul that is loving the Lord with all of their being. We've never done that before. We don't rest perfectly. We don't find renewal perfectly. We don't restore ourselves perfectly when it comes to worshiping the Lord. 
And at the same time, when it comes to your mind, that one's probably the easiest one. You know yourself better than anybody. You know the thoughts that you have on any day, any moment, any breath, that, that literally are thoughts that I can't believe I just thought that. I can't believe I just went there. I can't believe I just had that thought towards my spouse or my children or my coworkers or my friends or the person sitting next to me right now. I can't believe I thought that. And that's even just on a daily basis. But even on that, our best thoughts, when we think we're thinking rightly, can be misconstrued and broken and fractured. For our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. We're finite. We're not infinite. We're not God. And so even our thoughts fall short when it comes to loving him with all of our mind. And so what we needed was this passage of scripture which comes to us and says all that was really uh, condemning us last week. All, all authority has been given to Jesus. All authority, the authority there is the power that Jesus possesses to love the Lord with all his heart. To love the Lord with all his soul, to love the Lord with all his mind, so that when Jesus was the perfect person living on this earth, he was earning for us the all that we need in order to abide in a relationship with Christ. So that's why we're able to come to verses like Galatians 2.20 and own them for our lives. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I no longer live. That means I no longer strive to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. I no longer strive to do that. Christ lives in me. The person who was able to do it now lives in me. And therefore, I'm able to live for him. Therefore, I'm able to love him. Therefore, I'm able to give my life over to him as he has sacrificed himself for me. So that all authority is important because nothing else will happen if we are not living under the banner of that all authority has been given to Jesus, go therefore. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This authority means that Jesus has the power and the right to exert himself into any and every culture, country, nation, ethnicity, whatever you will say, in order to bring about his commission. Authority means he's written the warrant for us to be able to go into any place in the entire world and tell them to follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. All authority. I am king over kings. I am ruler over rulers. I am lord over lords. I am giving you, his followers, his believers, the right to go and tell anybody the good news. And in order for good news to be good news, is it has to invade bad news, right? It has to tell people your way of living, your way of believing, your way of, of, of what you're following in this world, what you're giving yourself over into this world is wrong. Like that's why Jesus coming into the scene, the first thing he preaches is repent. And be baptized. Turn from what you're, you're following. Turn from what you're trusting in. Turn from what you're giving yourself over to. Because it's not working for you. It's not, it's not providing for you the satisfaction that you're looking for. It's not providing for you the pleasure that you're looking for. It's not providing for you what you are ultimately trying to worship. It's never going to work. So just stop. 
Stop doing that. Jesus is here and he's ushering in his kingdom and he's telling us, follow me. Trust me. And him having all authority is him granting us the right to go and take Jesus for him to exert himself as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to bring and usher in his kingdom among their lives. This gives us the right in a world right now who preaches tolerance. It gives us the right to be able to go into Buddhist believing religions, Muslim believing religions, Jesus denying Jewish religions, works based religions, and say, You're wrong. You're just wrong. You're wrong like I was wrong when I thought I was following my dreams and following my path and doing whatever I thought was going to be satisfying to me. Someone had to tell me at one point I was wrong. And that was the best news I could have ever heard. And so we are taking this good news. We are going because Jesus and grants us the right to go and tell them they're wrong. And like we've got to get away from this place as if we are now believing the truth that that is being a bigot or that that is being narrow-minded or that that is being uh, unloving, that it's being mean. we got to get away from that. Because the reality is, if we believe Jesus is who He says He is and that He's doing what He says He has done and that He is reconciling people into a relationship with God, that He is saving them from an eternal wrath and condemnation and damnation that is going to hell because of their sins, if we believe that to be truth, then the most loving thing we can do is tell someone who disagrees with us that they're wrong. That's the most loving thing that we can do. Now, there's a way in which we can say it and communicate it that is not like, you evil, sinful, ridiculous, idiotic person. How dare you believe what the world is preaching and teaching? You need to trust Jesus. Let's not go that way. But there's a way in which we can, as the Apostle Paul has said, I wish I could cut myself off from Christ if that meant that my own brethren would come to know Christ. Like There's a different level of compassion there. There's a different level of empathy where, where you are longing and groaning for those who are lost to come to know Jesus Christ. And so we go because of who he is and what he is called and what he possesses in authority. Now, to go is hard because oftentimes it means leaving. It means leaving something behind, leaving something precious, leaving something comfortable at oftentimes. Not every disciple is going to leave their hometown. Not every disciple is going to do that. But there is this aspect of leaving. Indianapolis is not my hometown. It's not. I know you can tell that oftentimes in what comes out of my mouth. It's not where I grew up. It's not home, although now it is home for us. But it's not where we're from. We left, and leaving was hard. In 2013, when we left Tennessee, that was hard. There were tears and snot and all kinds of things going on when we left. Because we were leaving relationships. We were leaving family. We were leaving uh, what we just like to call friends, family, and familiarity. I mean, it was everything that we knew up until that point, and then we left. But we left because God called us to go, to go. 
I know many of you in this room, this is not your hometown. Many of you, this is where you landed for jobs after graduating from college. And so you're here, but you're not here by accident. You're here because of the sovereign decree of the Lord to go. Whether you think you chose Indianapolis or not, God chose for you to be here. For you to be sent here, as Acts 17, 26 says. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You think you picked the hotel, or the hotel. You picked the house that you're living in or the apartments that you're living in? God determined that. God allotted the boundaries in the place in which you're going to dwell. Like God has this whole thing rigged. He sent you. He called you to go where you are because of the sovereign goodness of God and because of the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we go and we're faithful to go. And we are trusting that as we are going, which is actually how the phrase is in the original Greek, as we are going, as we are living, as we are breathing, we are doing something specific. We are making disciples. And as I already mentioned, to make a disciple is to tell everyone, every religion, to tell them to stop following their religion and worldview and start following Jesus. To become simply a follower of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. A student of Jesus. To believe Jesus as the only truth in this world that makes sense of this world. Is that not what everyone's trying to do right now? Everyone. They're trying to make sense of what's going on. Political affiliations are trying to make sense of what's going on. From a governing standpoint, from a political standpoint, economic standpoint, social standpoint. They're just trying to make sense of it all. And they're trying to provide a plan or an agenda on how to fix it. And that's going on over the entire world. Everyone is trying to make sense of what's going on, why things break, why things are fractured, why things are broken, why there's evil in the world. And they're trying to take what they believe to be good and fix it. The only thing that truly makes sense of the world around us, offers any type of solution to fix it, is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We're after trying to figure out the way to get there, we're trying to figure out the truth that's going to grant us how to get there. And we're trying to figure out how to have life and have it abundantly. That is not every man's aim. The pursuit of happiness, is it not? I mean, that's written in our Constitution. They were on to something. Every person who lives and exists is after the pursuit of happiness. Blaise Pascal, who is a French mathematician, philosopher, theologian, uh, probably not someone that I would have hung out with based on those things, um, but a very smart man. He said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different worldviews. The will never takes the least step except to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Every person that lives, based on the decisions that they make, are based on this one simple thing. I'm after happiness. I'm after happiness. And I'm trying to figure it out how to get there. What's going to make me happy? And what we're called to do is disciples, followers of Jesus, this is the only thing that's going to get you to that place. Any type of happiness, joy, nirvana, if you will, whatever death 
decade you're from, whatever you think is going to get you there, it's Jesus. We're telling people, follow him. Follow his way, follow his truth, follow his life, because that's the only thing that's going to offer you any sort of satisfaction in this world, any pleasure in this world, any happiness. It's not going to be your family. It's not going to be your spouse. It's not going to be your careers. It's not going to, it's not going to be your children. I know that I kind of emphasize that one a little bit. It's just not going to be anything that's material that offers us what our souls were created for. To worship. This thing's awesome. And that's what idolatry is. Is worshiping anything less of God. Anything less of God. And is that, uh, that's what our world does. It just, it just, it, it, it's like the hamster running on the wheel. Let me just try this new thing. Let me try this new thing. Let me try this new thing. This is finally going to be the thing. More education, more trinkets and toys, more stuff that you already have. All of those things are going to work, even religion itself. If religion itself is our means to try to be happy, but it's not centered around Jesus Christ, then religion itself is not going to cut it. It's not going to work. That just becomes a works-based issue that you keep running and working and working, and it never, never gets you where you're trying to go. Tim Keller once said, Discipleship... Making disciples is not an option. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must follow me. He must follow me. We're not making converts. We're making people who follow Jesus. That's present tense. It's not a one-time decision. Jesus it is a lifestyle that is following him in every aspect of your life. So when it comes to your, 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 your marriage, I'm following Jesus. When it comes to your career and how to be the best owner, entrepreneur, employee, whatever it looks like in your role, I'm following Jesus. When it comes to raising kids, I'm following Jesus. When it comes to being a friend, I'm following Jesus. I'm following him because he's the one who is defining all of those relationships. He is not an add-on into any of these relationships. It's not a let me, like following Jesus is not, let me check my schedule to see when I can work Jesus in. That's not it. Jesus is the one who defines your schedule and everything that goes onto your schedule flows through Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of his, a follower of his. I loved a long time ago. I, I, I'm not a fan anymore of the author of this video, but it was still a fantastic video. This is someone who's left the faith. But this, the, the video itself was painting this picture of what it looked like in first century to be a pupil or a student of a rabbi. And the idea of a student of a rabbi was to was to be so close to the rabbi that as you're following them around, you're literally covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, this is first century, so they're walking around on dirt, you know, crusted roads, and so it would kick up just dust and all kinds of things, and, and, and it would literally, someone following behind them would just get covered in it. Think what your car looks like from salt trucks in the wintertime. Like, just covered in the dust of your rabbi. We're so following Jesus. 
in every aspect of our lives that we're clothed in his dust. In everything that he exudes, the characteristics that he possesses, they become ours as we follow along. And then we make disciples. We go and make disciples, followers of Jesus, of all nations. Well, all nations, you got to remember, he's giving this command to, at this point, 11 guys, because they haven't added the 12th to replace Judas yet. He's giving these command to 11 guys, and he's telling them, I want you to go and do what I've done for you over the last three years. You've been following me. I want you to go and make more followers. And I want you to make followers of Jerusalem. They probably would have taken that and thought, there's a lot of people here. Like, I don't, you, it took you three years and you got like 11 or 12. You lost one. Now, we know he didn't lose one, but we know. How are we going to do this? And it's not even just Jerusalem. In Acts 1.8, it's Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here, it's make disciples. You don't know what the ends of the earth are. It's everything. It's all nations. All nations. Well, that is an overwhelming. This is kind of going back to that condemnation of the all word that just haunts us all the time. All nations? Are you serious? Like in our current day right now, there's over 16,000 ethnic groups. 16,000 cultural groups within all nations, within all countries. That's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. I'm, I'm still learning English. Like I'm still figuring that out. Much less to learn another language in order to take the gospel to another language or an unreached people group like that seems overwhelming we're just looking at like we're doing surveys right now just on blocks around indianapolis to see what the lostness looks like in the city and we know just from church planting experience in any given city that you walk in in the american christian nation that we belong to right now 80 percent at least lostness in every city that exists Every city. And I'm even including the Bible Belt South. I would probably dare say at this point, it's post-Christian South where there's more non-believers there than there are anywhere else in the country. They just don't know it. They don't know it. All nations. For some, that might look like a commitment to pursuing people of different color and ethnicity as you're in your own neighborhood. Honestly. Like we're just starting. Like just bite it off a little bit. The first eight chapters. Nine chapters of Acts. Is in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. And, and the reality of the entire book of Acts. Because a lot of, we spent almost two years. Walking through the book of Acts. In our church. And, and for, for some. Plus, they're like, are we ever going to finish Acts? Like, are we ever going to get through this book? And I just got to remind you that, that the entire book of Acts, as we're walking through those gospels going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to ultimately getting to Rome by the end of it, was a span of 30 to 40 years of gospel advancement, gospel expansion. Like, what we're talking about when we're looking at this command of go and make disciples of all nations, we're not trying to say how all nations in the next two to three years. What we're looking at is how can we be faithful to the command that God has given us to go and make disciples of all nations over the next 30 to 40 years? Are we 
conversation with the six and a half, seven billion people that exist on the planet right now? No. But the disciples that we make will go and make more disciples who go and make more disciples so that hopefully over the course of 30 to 40 years, yes, it's not going to be the 30 to 40 of you in this room right now, but it might be the 30 to 40 extended over the next three to four years, the 100 to 150 over the years after that, to the thousands over the years after that, to the point where, and this is, and I know I've done this study with us before in the past, but if you were to just be a phenomenal evangelist, and you were to reach 100 people a year converting them, not discipling them to where they're able to disciple another person, but just converting them. If you were to do that, 100 people a year who don't replicate themselves, but they just know about Jesus. After 21 years, you would have created a church of about 2,100 people who come and, 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 and spectate, but they don't participate. 2,100 people. Now, here's the thing. If you were to do that over 21 years and you had a church of 2,100 people, that would be considered a mega church and you'd probably get invited to conferences to speak at. What was your strategy? What did you do? How'd you reach 100 people every year? That's amazing. That's baptizing someone every three days. And you would probably have a great salary and great life and all kinds of things. Retire early. But you reach 2,100 people. There's 2.1 million people in the greater metro area of Indianapolis. There's nothing to brag about, right? But if you were to focus on two people, one turns into two. And those two people, and you were to do that for a year, the next year those two then become four. And the next year those four become eight. And the next year those and 32 and 64 and 128 and 256 and I'll stop. And, and as you keep going, in 21 years, you would have reached over 2 million people. Indianapolis is covered in 21 years by just that multiplication of, of you focusing on two people per year, discipling them, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And here's the cool thing. If you keep multiplying it by year 33, if you're still on the 100 route, you're at what, 3,300 people? On the multiplication route of just two people per year, by year 33, it's over 7 billion people. 7 billion people. And if you don't believe me, just put your phone 2 times 2 and hit it 33 times. And you'll see it. The world can be reached in a lifetime. In a lifetime. And so what we're calling ourselves to do, what God is calling us to do as the district church, is to go and make disciples of all nations. The only way we're going to get to all nations is if we're multiplying disciples. Not adding, multiplying disciples. Teaching you to observe all that God has commanded us in such a way that you're able to do that for others. Reproducing reproducers. That's what matters. How do we do that? By baptizing and teaching. These are just the two plays we're going to run baptizing and teaching. And I'm going to kind of go through these a little faster. This commission of the church isn't a private commission, but a public commission where people are to be baptized as a means of publicly displaying and declaring allegiance to Jesus and belonging to His church. That's what the baptism waters are. 
We've had six to seven baptisms so far this year. We've got a couple more in the pipeline. What it is doing is lost people are declaring that they've understood that they're sinners, that someone has shared the good news with them. Now, Team Jesus, that they are following Jesus, that they are loving Jesus, that they are all about Jesus, and they've given their lives over to Jesus, and they want to publicly declare that because that's what God's called us to do. Again, you've heard me say that the relationship with Jesus is not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a public relationship with Jesus Christ. It is a communal relationship with Jesus and with His church. It is declaring not only to Jesus that I have been buried with you in baptism and I have been raised to walk in the newness of life, but it is also declaring to the body of Christ that I have put my old self to death and I am a new creation that is a part of the new community of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is declaring. And that's why it was the first command that Jesus gives to us when we receive his salvation is to publicly declare it. And to show that you publicly belong to this new faith community. This new kingdom that he is ushering in that is going to continue to advance the gospel. And so we baptize. And that's why, and I know some of you, if you've been through our DNA process, then you have heard. And if you've not been in our DNA process, says sometimes it's still a shock we're baptists all right we're we're baptists now i know there's there's a lot of streams of baptists okay all right we're not like the snake handling ones if this is your first times here we're not those i see more of those kind of back where i'm from but that's not us by the least common denominator of why we say we're baptists is because we dunk people in water. That's it, alright? If you've been to non, uh, uh, non-denominational churches who dunk people in water, they're Baptists. I, I don't care how non-conforming, non-denominational they want to be, it's Baptists, okay? There's really only two streams that you land in when it comes to how the church functions from this place, and it's either sprinkling or dunking. I'm just saying the reason why we dunk is because of the original Greek language that's used here, which is baptismo, which means to immerse, to immerse. And it does a better job informing and declaring what is actually happening spiritually from the illustration physically. What it means spiritually is that we are being immersed, dunk, buried, our old self, our death. We are put into the grave. And then we are raised into the newness of life. And that is happening in and only in the Trinity. We're immersed. We are literally covered in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that what we're seeing physically is that all the water that covers every part of your body is the same thing that's happening to you spiritually where God is covering your entire existence. Your entire existence. And so that's what baptism, again, you can tell people we're Baptist by this alone. (laughs) Nothing else. So we baptize in the Trinity. And that's why he's able to say also in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. What we see happening in baptizing into the Trinity, baptizing into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is, is not only are we being baptized into Christ, but Christ is coming into us. And as Christ is coming into us, kind of like I said in that Galatians 2.20 passage, where I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The reason why we're able to do that is because Christ now living in us is transforming us from the inside out to become more like his son Jesus. Baptism is not only us in Christ, but Christ in us so that we are not now being conformed to the pattern of this world, but we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's an important thing to understand about being not conformed to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Baptism is God now on a daily process. Because again, as you look at this in the original text, making disciples of all nations, baptizing, it's a constant ongoing thing that is working out in your soul, in your life, is a constant transformation of us being immersed in God and God being immersed in us. And what that is doing, when we see do not be conformed, the original language for that is syskematizo, which means to pattern one's life after. What it's saying is the world is just trying to pattern its life after the world and trying to make things better. Copy this, copy that. Try this, try that. But it's outward approach of trying to do something to make your life better. And it's never going to work. Us even as believers trying to pattern our life after Christ without having Christ in us is never going to work. That's why I said just trying to do religion is not going to work. If Christ is not in you, if you've not been baptized in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but yet you're trying to pray and you're trying to read His Word, you're trying to evangelize in order for God to think that you are a good enough person for Him to grant you salvation, it's not going to work. You cannot pattern your life after Christ and think that that is going to be salvation or think that that's going to earn salvation. You can't fake it until you make it in Christianity. We have to be transformed from the inside out. And that's why this word transformed in the original text is metamorpho, which is where we get the language metamorphosis, which means to change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. What happens through baptism spiritually for us is that we are metamorpho. We are being transformed immersed into the image of Christ so that now as we live our lives defined by Jesus and defined by the Father and defined by the Holy Spirit, we now possess the all authority in order to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. We don't have that authority if we are not baptized into the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you cannot go and make disciples and teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded if they are not immersed into the Godhead. It's got to stay central there. It is the source. It is the fuel. It is, it is God-centric. We can't do the work of Christianity if we leave God out of the picture. That's what happens to the church in Ephesus. If you see in Revelation the letter from the angel to the church in Ephesus, again, we're talking a church that 
knows theology probably better than any church that existed in the Bible. Who keeps out false prophets or false doctrine to come into the church. Like They are rightly knowing what to teach and preach and what to teach others to observe and command. But what they've done is they forgot the first love. They forgot the Godhead. They left out Jesus in their church. And what Jesus gives them as a warning is, if you don't get back to your first love, if you don't get back to baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you don't get back to that immersion, then I'm transforming presence. I'm removing the lampstand. I'm removing the light of your church in the community that it exists. And so if we're only focused about going and checking off the box of all the countries that we've reached and all the countries that we shared the gospel with, and if we're only focused on our, our discipleship activity, but we're leaving out the source of the Godhead, we're leaving out the decree of the Father, we're leaving out the work and life of Jesus Christ, and we're leaving out the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, if we're leaving out those things, then it, it, none of it works. It's just all in vain. And so that's why we can't just skid over really quickly the baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is the very fuel for what we do and why we exist. And then that leads into the second part. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is to keep. That is to obey. A lot of times we want to jump on the teach. Finally, something that we can do. Something that we can own. Something that we can comprehend that is an actionable item or step that we can do. And you know, if you've been the district for any time now you know that we like teaching we have institute that is theological education for believers in order to grow their minds about jesus christ about the father and about the holy spirit to grow their minds about the bible to grow their minds about all the truths that jesus has commanded us i think where we need to step up our game a bit is teaching them in such a way that we are also calling them to observe it, to keep it, to obey it. And that's not a heavy-handed, like, obedience is a negative word. It's a negative word in our culture. It's a negative word that's crept into our families. It just kind of makes us squirm a little bit, especially if you've come from a familial background that where obedience was kind of the thumping of the head or this a dictator-like father or mother or this authoritarian figure or this was a bad boss that you had or whatever it looked like and they're just calling you to obedience. That's not what God's heart is when He's calling us to observe all that He's commanded. What He's saying is, I want you to experience life and life abundantly. And the only way for you to experience life and life abundantly, that, that happiness... That joy, that nirvana, that whatever it is that you find is peaceful and enjoyable about life. If you want that, the only way you're going to get it is by obeying my commands, by, by following and by, by meditating on and by memorizing and by just living them out and practicing them and abiding in them in every step of the way. Literally, if you walk through John 13, 14, and 15, it is three chapters that are specifically focused on Jesus Christ telling His disciples, this is how you abide in Me, is by keeping what I'm telling you. 
by observing what I'm telling you, by obeying what I'm telling you. You do these things, you trust these things, it will go well for you. And all of those things are again flowing from the identity of Jesus. I mean, this is where the majority of our ministries are birthed out of because this is the ongoing work of the church of Jesus in both evangelism and discipleship. And I really don't like separating those uh, terms because I believe it's all under the umbrella of discipleship. I think this is what the idea of making disciples is, is teaching people to observe. It is like discipleship to a non-believer or an, un- <laughs> an unbeliever or a non-believer. Discipleship is, is literally discipling them, discipling them unto Jesus Christ. Teaching them unto Jesus Christ. Showing them who He is in the Scriptures. Discipleship then is also teaching them to now observe all of those things once they come to Jesus Christ. Teaching them to abide in those things now that they are in and immersed in Jesus Christ. And so here, teaching and accountability is key. Here's three of my favorite quotes from Jen Wilkin, who has such a heart for teaching and to observe. Here's what she says, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. We need to teach so that the mind will know. And then in teaching, as we are calling people to observe, the heart grows and the affections dwell. And they just they, they, they exude out because now we know what to worship. We know what to give our affection to. We know how to feel about our lives. But we can't get there if we are not taught what the Bible tells us. She also says, if we want to feel deeply about God, we must learn to think deeply about God. Teaching is key here. She also says, we will not wake up 10 years from now and find we have passively taken on the character of God. I mean, you think about it. Like, Picture yourself 10 years from now. Like, How do you imagine yourself 10 years from now? And from a spiritual standpoint, Do you see yourself possessing and living out more of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Do you see yourself as more loving? Joyful? Peaceful? Patient? Do you see yourself as more kind and gentle? You see yourself as more good and generous. You see yourself as more faithful. Do you see yourself exercising more self-control? Those things don't happen passively. They happen as we are taught the commands of Jesus. And we meditate on them. And we pray the Holy Spirit anchors them within our soul and completes the work that He's begun. But it does not happen if we are not teaching it 
and receiving it in our minds and being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Christianity is not just a let's grow the affections and let's feel our way towards God and let's, let's sit on the couch and wait for God to do a miraculous work. It is also at the same time us, as God has pursued us, we now are free to pursue Him. And the way that we pursue Him back primarily is through the knowledge of God. Getting after Him and His Word. Because here's the thing. What is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? It is the written revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the best way to describe the Word of God. It is the written revelation of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe me, read John 1. He is the Word. And His Word is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces down into our souls to dividing even bone and marrow. We're after truth. We're after seeking happiness. We're after seeking pleasure and all those things. The Word of God, getting it into our minds, getting it into our hearts, getting it into our souls, is the only thing that is able to discern our identities, to tell us, here's where we're off, and here's where we need to trust Jesus. I love what um, Jackie Hill Perry says when it comes to the idea of what we give our obedience over to. And she contrasts this really interesting in a way in her book, Gay Girl, Good God. She says this about the relationship between belief and obedience, even from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or follows him. Here's what she says in her book. Yet unbelief doesn't see God as the ultimate good. So it can't see sin as the ultimate evil. It instead sees sin as a good thing and thus God's commands as a stumbling block to joy. In believing the devil, I didn't need a pentagram pendant to wear. Neither did I need to memorize a hex or two. All I had to do was trust myself more than God's word. I had to believe that my thoughts, my affections, my rights, my wishes were worthy of absolute obedience. And that in laying prostrate before the flimsy throne I'd made for myself, that I'd be doing a good thing. That's the perspective of what a sinner in absolute obedience is giving their lives over to in worship. Like you realize, as created beings, that's the only way we can operate is we give ourselves over to absolute obedience to something that we worship. Everybody does that, even the atheist who believes that doesn't exist. They give themselves over to it. And they worship it with absolute obedience. And what God is commanding us is in contrast to be Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is to trust Jesus' words more than this world. It is to believe His thoughts, His affections, His rights, His wishes, and that those things are worthy of absolute obedience. And that in laying prostrate before His glorious throne we are able to then see the only good thing that exists, God alone. God alone. 
And so what do we teach? We teach the word of God. The district is committed to doing this for the next 30 to 40 years as the, as the Lord allows us to do that. All ministries will flow from this commission to teach you to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And honestly, the, the, the way that we see that fleshing itself out is going to be in three primary groups. Three primary groups. This is, and this isn't like the once I get there, I've arrived. This is bare minimum what we should be a part of. What we should be a part of if we want to be faithful to Jesus' way of discipleship. And here's what those three look like. This is just straight from what Jesus did himself in his three years of ministry. Jesus did not neglect the gathering of the saints. Jesus gathered to preach. And he gathered followers to preach. Sometimes those followers were 5,000, 4,000. Sometimes those followers were in synagogues where he would stand up and preach. Sometimes they were in uh, sermons on the mount where he would come up to a place and he'd gather his disciples and his followers and he would teach a sermon. But he would gather the saints and he would teach. Another thing that he would do is he would then pull his disciples, his followers, into groups of 12. And he would sit down with the 12 and he would share a meal with them or he would encourage them or he would pray with them or he would wash their feet. He would serve them. He would gather them in a group. And then from there, he would then pull aside two to three, Peter, James, and John, and he would disciple them even further. Even further. For us, we think that's the floor. Gather together as the saints to sit under the preaching, teaching, singing, praying of the Word of God. God is doing something in this space, supernaturally, that He does not do through podcasts, YouTube. Coffee shops. Homes. There's something that God has orchestrated in the gathering of the saints to sit under the word in which he has called qualified men to be able to preach and teach in such a way that they are then called to observe those things. And again, this is walking this out. If they don't observe those things, he's also called us to then hold accountable to the point of even church discipline. And it's a good thing that he's given to the church because he's after your joy. Not after how much percentage you give to the church or how often you pray. It's after your joy. You're robbing yourself when you're not following and being obedient to the commands that God has called us to. In addition to that, he's also called the church to then scatter into groups and homes and share meals together and encourage one another. You see this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And so we gather in community groups throughout the week. We've got five that will be launching out in the fall in just a few weeks. We want you there, not because it's for us to... Oh, we've got five community groups. We're training leaders. We've got hosts. We've got all these things that are great and grand and whatever. It's because we're trying to be faithful to what Jesus has done with His disciples. We want to multiply that and replicate that. We want to create spaces for people to be able to have to be known and known by one another in such a way that you can literally come to each other and confess your deepest, darkest sins and it be a safe place 
for you to then receive exhortation, admonishment, and encouragement from the body of Christ in which they can pray for you and they can ask for the Spirit of God to continue to do the work that He's already begun in you. That's why we gather in groups. It's not because you're phenomenal at cooking. It's not because your, your, your uh, living room is, it looks like it should be on HGTV. Like It's not those things. It's because we need the people of God to get with the people of God in order to know one another. Like, I don't know if you've known this or seen this, but in this room right now, this is not a dialogue, right? I would love you to talk back sometimes, but it's not a dialogue. This is us trying to be faithful to the Word of God and preaching it out in order for your souls to continue to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here. But I can't get to know you better in this room right now, what we're doing. Nor do you really get to know me. If you're getting to know only me better in this scenario, then we're failing to preach the Word of God. And that's probably why, again, you don't hear us like going the route of, of all kinds of illustrations or here's some examples from my family and story and blah, blah, blah. And we just don't do that. The Word of God, we want to be faithful to the Word of God. Because that's what you need. That's what you need. But you need one another. And you need one another in groups. In addition to groups, you need one another in Paul and Timothy-like relationships. And what I mean by that is Paul took Timothy and literally told him, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, that seems arrogant. You told us to make disciples which are followers of Jesus. What Timothy is saying, or what Paul is saying to Timothy is, follow me as I follow Christ. As I'm getting covered in his dust, I want you get covered in my dust so that his dust gets on you and then the dust becomes the dust and it just works out that way. And then I want you to cover other people in dust as you call them to follow you as they are following me as I follow Christ. Just at the end of the day, we're following Christ. But call someone else that you are going to be invested in their life more than just once or twice a week. It's, it's a relationship in which when you break down on the road at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's who you call to come pick you up and it out or when you have given yourself over to some type of sin it's the person that you call and say i need to confess i need your encouragement right now i need your rebuke right now i need your reprove i need you to correct me right now i need you to call me back to the identity that i am in christ not this temporary identity that i am struggling with in my old flesh we need Paul-Timothy relationships in this church where we are discipling one another as iron sharpens iron. We're beating the Bible into each other. We're beating Jesus into each other. We're hammering it into each other. We need that. Just as Jesus was doing that with Peter, James, and John. And did they follow him perfectly? No. Did Timothy follow Paul perfectly? No. That's why there's grace. But it's also a grace-driven effort. It's a grace-driven effort where we make this a priority. We make this a priority. Because I'll be honest with you, what we're doing here is important. What we do in groups is important. But those things ultimately should give way to the only way we're going to ever get to the two, reproducing two and four and eight, is if we get down to that nitty-gritty level. That nitty-gritty level where you've got someone pouring into you the gospel. And I hope that looks like an every other day basis. Whether it's through text message, joining up for coffee in the morning. Like you, you work it out. You make it happen. 
Even to the point when, when Jesus was pulling Peter, James, and John, and he said, I'm going to go teach you guys how to pray as I go and pray up on the mountain. Like he wasn't, Jesus didn't need them there to protect him or pray for him, but he called them to pray. And he was trying to teach them that. But you know what? It was inconvenient for Peter, James, and John because they kept falling asleep. Like We need to inconvenience one another for the sake of the gospel and the sake of our growth and our sanctification in the Lord. We need to do that. We need to raise the bar on our walk with Christ. Because it's after Jesus. This is Jesus. Like, if you right now tell me, I don't know if I can raise the bar. Well, you just don't know Jesus that well. I'll just be honest with you. There should be nothing in our life that inconveniences us to not be a faithful follower and disciple of Jesus. Like I said, don't let your schedule dictate whether or not you are being covered in the dust of your rabbi Jesus. Let Jesus dictate your schedule and you work it out. You work it out to make it where it should be. Where it should be. And there's grace in that. There's grace in that. I don't want you to hear me like go kind of works based on that. We just work it out with Jesus. All right? We work it out with Jesus. Last thing, because I know I'm, I've gone long. Thank y'all. We go because Jesus tells us, Behold, I am with you always. The Behold is another support to this commission. There will never be a moment Jesus is not with you. And is that not the most encouraging thing for the whole day? Authority is fantastic. I want Jesus with me at every moment. And that's what he tells us. I will be with you. This is a daunting task. I'm with you every step of the way. John Patton, who was a missionary going to make disciples to the hostile and unreached people of the Hebrides, as he sat trapped in a tree, as he was trying to silence, he said he enjoyed sweeter fellowship with Jesus through this promise than he had ever known before. To the point that 40 years later, he said if he could go back, he would love to join Jesus there in that tree again. I, we've not, I don't think there's a person in this room who, who have been in that situation where they are going and making disciples to the point that these people that they're trying to make disciples of, followers of Jesus, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they're trying to kill you to the point that they're where they've ran you up a tree and you're just waiting it out. And he says in that moment, in that moment, what he clung to was this promise of Jesus saying, I'm going to wait this out with you. I see them down there. They're throwing spears. I see them. But I'm here with you. And he says there's no moment in his life greater than that sweet moment of knowing Jesus was there with him. Man, that's what we got to hold on to throughout this whole process. When you get persecuted because you're sharing your faith with someone else, that's all right. Jesus is there with you. He's there with you. And at the same time, when you're sharing your faith with someone and they come to know Christ and we baptize them, man, Jesus is there with you. And he's celebrating because he's immersing himself into another person. 
And he's drawing that sinner who's dead and he's making them alive. And they're now experiencing life and life abundantly. That's what we want. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your good news. And we thank you for the grace that you have given us in your life, your death, and your resurrection. And we thank you for this commission that you've called us to. We know that it can be a heavy-handed commission because it is hard to go. It's hard to make disciples, especially of all nations. But we know that ultimately it is you who people as they're being baptized into the Godhead. And we know that it is you who has all the authority. And we know that it is you who is always with us. And so we can't lose. We can't lose. And so we hold on to that. We hold on to that truth as we are faithful disciples of your son Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm reminded as I share that story of John Patton. That as he's sitting there in that tree and he's experiencing Jesus. He's experiencing Jesus because Jesus ultimately went and was hung on a tree himself. He was hung on a tree himself. As we come to this time of communion, this time to just sit and receive this spiritual meal for believers, for saints, we are reminded of that sacrifice Jesus made where he took up his cross and he died for us. So that we, and and I want as we partake of this meal here in a moment, I want us to, to just visualize that for a moment. Jesus being placed on the cross, breaking his body, shedding his blood as the fuel, the fuel for us as disciples to, as Luke 9.23 says, for us to take up our cross daily and follow him. Follow him. We're able to do that because the blood that is ever flowing from Jesus covers our sins, past, present, future, makes us holy, makes us righteous, makes us disciples. And there we are able to now abide in him on a daily basis and go and make more disciples. And so I want you to go ahead and stand. If you do not have the elements, please go back to the table and grab the elements. Come to your seats. We will remember together the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at